Hello and thanks for listening to Verse by Verse with Clinton de France. The apostles and early Christians had a faith worth suffering and dying for. What does it take to have this kind of authentic faith? Find out next as we study Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 1 through verse 22. Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to be about five thousand. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in their midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled, and they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go outside of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them, that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach, in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over forty years old, on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. In Acts chapter 3, the apostles Peter and John used the miraculous healing of a lame man as an occasion to announce the gospel to a large crowd gathered in the temple complex, specifically the area called Solomon's Porch. In their standard form, they announced the true identity of Jesus as Messiah, 
the injustice of his murder at the hands of the Jews, and the marvelous outcome that God raised him from the dead, gave him authority over all creation and will consummate all history in his total righteous reign over the universe. Picking up in verses 1 and 2, Now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them. Earlier in chapter 2, we learned that from the beginning, the followers of Jesus had favor with all the people, Acts 2 and verse 47. However, in Luke's history, the people does not include the rulers. In fact, it usually stands in contrast to the rulers. The priests probably raised the alarm because this scene seems to have interrupted the normal procedure of evening prayer. The captain of the temple most likely referred to the chief over those whose duty it was to guard the Levites. And Reese says that within the temple complex, their function was primarily to preserve the orderly, worshipful atmosphere which had certainly been interrupted by the commotion of the miracle and sermon. With these men also were the Sadducees. Now, in the Gospels, Jesus' primary antagonists were the Pharisees, and the Sadducees only occasionally seemed to give many notice at all, and then only to voice their pet doctrine, which we will see was the source of their involvement here as well. The Pharisees were more popular and influential in the rural communities in which Jesus concentrated his ministry, but the Sadducees were the leading force in Jerusalem. They were the sect of the priests, more politically than spiritually motivated, and in fact they had been thoroughly influenced by Greek philosophy, even to the point that they denied the resurrection of the dead. That was probably the greatest contributor to their sudden increase in opposition to Christianity. Once the resurrection of Christ became the central theme of the Christian message, wherever faith in the resurrection spread, the power and sway of the Sadducees was sure to diminish. So Luke says they were greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus, that is in the case of Jesus, the resurrection from the dead. Verse 3, And they laid hands on them. The pretense for the arrest would be the disturbance of the temple atmosphere, but the real reason was the ideological threat to their power that the resurrection posed. But notice that the primitive response to the preaching of the resurrection was to arrest the preacher. There was no room in those days for the swoon theory. The world understood too well the nature of crucifixion to believe that anyone could have survived. Stronger than claiming that the women and disciples had accidentally gone to the wrong tomb would have been their production of the right tomb and the body of Jesus. But that could not be done. No one denied that the tomb was empty. Evidently, by this time, it had already proven ineffective to claim that the disciples had stolen the body, probably because the people knew the absurdity of such a notion, considering the tomb had been placed under guard by the Romans. So now, the only option for denying the resurrection was silencing the witnesses. Jewish law prohibited trials in the night, so Luke tells us that they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, one of the great themes and purposes of the book of Acts is the testimony of the gospel's triumph in the face of great opposition. In spite of interruption and arrest, Luke says many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. Now we learn in chapter 2 
that the apostles taught, precisely as Jesus instructed, that those who believe and are baptized will be saved, Mark 16 and 16. In this place, baptism is not explicitly mentioned, but there must have been some visible external manifestation of their faith, or else how could Luke know the precise number? It doesn't seem that they would have responded immediately because of the arrest and the late hour, but the point is the apostles' sermon had a lingering, powerful effect. For some time afterward, people were coming to the apostles and to the leaders of the Christians and professing their faith as a direct outgrowth of this event and of this sermon. And of course, they would have been immersed so that they might be forgiven and added to the community of the saved. Verses 5 through 6, And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. The three groups here mentioned, rulers, elders, and scribes, together with the high priest, made up the Jewish ruling council known as the Sanhedrin, which totaled between 70 and 72 members and functioned similarly to the Supreme Court in our own society. The rulers were the heads of the 24 divisions of priests, the elders were 24 representatives of the people, and the scribes, 24 lawyers, who transcribed and thereby developed expertise in the law. Annas was the legal high priest, though he had been deposed by the Romans and replaced by his son-in-law Caiaphas, yet the people still considered him the high priest, and he retained the position as president of the Sanhedrin. The others who were named or mentioned are all important and powerful figures in the society. When Luke says that they were gathered together at Jerusalem, this corroborates a report from outside the Bible that due to the increase in crime, the Sanhedrin had begun the custom of rotating where it met from place to place and only occasionally met in Jerusalem. This must have seemed like a terrible coincidence for the disciples, and perhaps those who arrested them thought, oh, we can take care of you once and for all. We'll take you straight to the highest court in the land for trial. When the Sanhedrin would gather, they would assemble in a semicircle surrounding the prisoner on trial. And so verse 7 says, And when they had set them in the midst or in the center, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? What they're talking about is the healing of the lame man that caused all the commotion. But notice how they avoid mentioning that it was a miracle or even acknowledging any of the wonderful facts of the case. We can see their insincerity and hypocrisy already. Verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well. Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel. Peter says, Since you've arrested us and held us in prison, and now here we are under investigation for doing a good deed to a helpless man, and since you wish to know how he was made well, we will tell you. It was by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. Listen to the boldness of Peter. Number one, he affirms that Jesus was the Messiah. He doesn't simply say Jesus of Nazareth, but Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Number two, he indicts the rulers for their part in murdering Jesus. This was the first time such a thing had taken place. So far as he said the things to the multitudes, 
But now he is accusing the leaders of the people to their faces. Number three, he reaffirms in the hour when it would have been most convenient to leave it out, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And number four, he affirms that Jesus is not only alive, but is still manifesting the powerful authority of God by miracles worked in his name. By him, this man stands here before you whole. Evidently, this means that they had arrested the healed man along with the apostles. But in so doing, they brought a damning piece of evidence against themselves into the courtroom. In verse 11, Peter appeals to the 118th Psalm, verse 22, which in the course of time would become the most frequently cited Old Testament passage in all of apostolic teaching. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. This psalm would have been familiar to this audience not only because of their natural acquaintance with the words of Scripture, but because it was quoted to at least some of them by Jesus himself in Matthew 22 and verse 42, just a couple of months previous as he preached the parable of the wicked husbandman who killed the son of the vineyard owner when he was sent to them. The illustration of the psalm pictures workers constructing an edifice like the temple itself, and coming across a certain stone from the quarry, Upon inspecting it very carefully, they do not find that it fits into their plans. In time, it becomes a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. It simply gets in the way for them, so they reject it. That is, they mark it as unworthy and they cast it into the trash heap. But in the course of time, it turns to their shock by the revelation of the master architect. That stone was the most important stone in the building. Translations differ over whether this word refers to the cornerstone, as it's usually rendered, the huge stone and the foundation that sets the direction and angle of the wall, or the keystone or capstone that would hold all the other stones together, ultimately would carry the same essential meaning. What the people had rejected and counted as unworthy was in fact of superlative and supreme importance, and without it, all their plans and intentions were doomed to failure. Christ is to Christianity, to the Bible, to the whole of history, what a cornerstone or even a keystone is to a building. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the one who established the very shape and sense of the edifice, and he is the one who holds it all together. Without him, as one said, all religion, all life is a tumble-down affair. And implied in this placement of the citation, it was the resurrection of Jesus in which God identified his importance and worth and overturned the unrighteous judgment of men against him. This awesome affirmation leads to one of the most controversial assertions ever made by the apostles. Verse 12, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This may well be the most hated doctrine in the whole Christian system, but it was taught first by Jesus himself. In John 14 and verse 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. As one man said, deny it, despise it, resist it if you must, but until the Lord's claims are disproved, there it is. It is interesting that the word salvation 
is the same word for well in verse 9. And this has led some interpreters to take Peter's words as referring to physical healing rather than spiritual deliverance. However, it seems best to take the two as connected. The rulers of the Jews knew that no one could do the miracles done by Jesus or by the apostles in his name unless God was with them. They had confessed such in John chapter 3 and verse 2. So if God raised Jesus from the dead and now empowered his servants to perform wonders and miracles, then Jesus is the only hope of salvation for anyone, including those who killed him. Verses 13 through 18. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, that is, they were not rabbis, they marveled. And they realized that they had been with Jesus, that is, they had received their training and education from him. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded him to go outside of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. Nothing has changed in the hearts of these people from the days when some of them blasphemed the Holy Spirit by attributing the miracles of Jesus to the prince of demons, or the days when Jesus raised Lazarus. And they had a similar meeting and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. John eleven forty seven, and then in verse 53, from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. Uh, chapter 12, verses 10 and 11 say, and plotted to put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews went away and believed in Jesus. Surely the apostles would remember this and now know that the same murderous rage was about to be set against them also. Verses 18 through 22. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them, because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over forty years old on whom the miracle of healing had been performed. Perhaps more than anything else, this record strikes us with the authenticity of the early disciples' faith. They had a religious confidence that could stand up to the most severe and extreme scrutiny and criticism and challenge, and not only that, but to persecution even imprisonment and violence from men who had the power and had demonstrated the resolve to kill if necessary. I often ask myself if I have that same kind of faith. I'm often asked by others who know in their hearts they do not have that kind of faith, how can it possibly be attained? We might think for a moment that their circumstances gave them their remarkable boldness and confidence Luke has stated several times that they had favor with all the people, and it's not so challenging to be strong and to do right when you know the majority is behind you. In fact, we know that certainly this was a factor in the minds of their enemies. Remember, verse 21 says they could find no way of punishing them because 
of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. However, this was clearly not the source of the disciples' confidence, because when the persecutions began to come against them from their own families and neighbors, the same boldness remained in them. We might think that it came then from the supernatural aid of the Holy Spirit. We recall back in verse 8, the Bible says that before Peter spoke his defense, he was full of the Holy Spirit. And certainly this does refer in some way to the promise of Jesus in Matthew 10, verses 17 through 20, when Jesus said, But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You'll be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. However, Peter himself charged that all Christians, even those who do not have the miraculous assistance of the Spirit, should not be afraid of their threats nor be troubled when we suffer for righteousness' sake, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be always ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. The commandment to be ready means that even without that special aid of the Spirit, we are expected to have boldness to suffer for God if it is necessary. But how? The truth is, the foundation for the authentic faith, the remarkable boldness, the unyielding conviction, and unwavering confidence of the apostles was the same foundation of faith available to all Christians in all situations at all times. It is not emotion. Emotions come and go. It is not experience. Experiences are not universal. It is the simple facts of the gospel concerning Jesus of Nazareth. He lived. He died for our sins. God raised him from the dead. He reigns in power and great glory from heaven. These facts, these real truths of history and of the present can be established by incontrovertible evidence. What does Luke spend his time reinforcing in this narrative? That the resurrection of Jesus was known to the apostles not by philosophical reasoning or by the dogmatic decree of some authority figure, but by the things which they had seen and heard. Those things gave them the power and strength to stand face to face with men who could kill them for their faith, who would kill them, and say, you want to make a judgment, judge this. Is it right for us to listen to you more than God? We will listen to God. What does Luke emphasize about the miracle they performed? It's absolute undeniability. There was the healed man standing in the courtroom. Everyone knew him. He had been around, and he had been crippled for more than 40 years, and now he was whole. You cannot debate a miracle, and there was a miracle. And when God worked these miracles, he worked them to authenticate Jesus, his chief cornerstone. Because of that, he worked them in such a way that even the hard-hearted and unbelieving had to say, we cannot deny it. Come to know Jesus. Fill your heart with the testimony and evidence for the principal facts concerning him. He lived, he died, 
He lives again. He reigns. And he will return. When you stand on these realities, when you can say that you know them beyond a reasonable doubt, that they are true, then you will have a true, authentic, and invincible faith. Thanks again for listening. Please subscribe to keep up with our weekly releases as we continue through the Scriptures together. Verse by Verse is brought to you by the 11th Street Church of Christ in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It is part of the Growing Biblical Studies program of Tulsa. To learn more, visit our website, bspoftulsa.com. When we walk with the Lord, when we walk with the Lord, in the light of His Word, in the light of His Word, what a glory He sheds on our way, sheds on our way, while we do His good will, while we do His good will, He abides with us still, He abides with us still, and with all who will trust and obey. Trust and do trust and